was a plunge into the middle of whatever she was thinking, followed by exasperation when you didn't know what she was talking about. Finally, I understood that she had moved to Venice, intending to stay, which meant that my home would be there too. The point of the call, in fact, was to say she was expecting me for Christmas. I'm still in the army. Well, they give passes, don't they? I mean, it's not as if the war's still on, and I'm sure you could use the break. I've seen the newsreels. It looks just awful there. Yes. Camps full of corpses, wheeled out in farm carts to mass graves. Feral kids eating out of the PX garbage cans. Women passing bricks hand over hand, digging out. G.I.'s rich with a pack of luckies. What happens after? Well then, she said, won't it be wonderful to have Christmas together? It's been years. In a fascist country, I said, half teasing. It's not the same thing at all. They're not Nazis. Anyway, all that's over. It's lovely here, just like before. I can't wait for you to see the house. Maybe it'll snow. They say it's enchanting in the snow. Characteristically, she hung up without giving me her address, so it was to Bertie that I later wrote to say that I'd be spending Christmas in the hospital. After surviving actual combat and the tough early days of the occupation, what got me, embarrassingly, was a rusty nail a careless step in the debris of a Frankfurt street that caused a puncture wound and required tetanus treatment, and a holiday spent with amputees. By the time I finally got to Venice, it was February. I was out of the army, and the city was huddled against a damp, misty cold. The piano nobile, grand and formal, was freezing, kept dark but not draftless by long, heavy drapes. The sitting room, warmed by space heaters, was comfortable. But the high Tiepolo dining room made meals so chilly and unpleasant that my mother had taken to eating in the kitchen or off a tray sitting next to the bars of her electric fire. What would have changed everything was sun cutting across the Adriatic to seep into all the tile roofs and parquet floors as it often did even in February. But the sky that winter was German, cloudy and gray. In the evenings, near our house, there was no light at all. A fog would come in from the sea, filling the Judeca Canal, streetlights were spaced far apart to save power, and the calles became dark medieval paths again. I noticed none of this, or rather, it was all so like the gray I was used to that I accepted it as natural. The gloomy afternoons were no different from the weather in my head, full of listless shadows and urge to draw in. Does anyone really come back from the war? The lucky ones just keep going, on to the next fight. The rest of us have to be brought up in stages like deep-sea divers to prevent the bends. The boys in the hospital had come back too fast. Their faces twitched, their eyes darted at every sound. I slept. The fog that came in at night from the lagoon would fill my head, too. A lulling numbness, asking to be wrapped in blankets, left alone. Sometimes there were dreams... Reminders of the nightmare time that was supposed to be over. But mostly, the sleep was just fog. Just like Swan, coucher de bonheur, my mother would say, but idly, not really worried. For by this time, Dr. Malione had come back into her life, so she was spending evenings out, unaware that when she left me with a book, I was already halfway up the stairs in my mind, curling up with the fog. The result was that I was waking early, before first light. It wasn't insomnia, I slept deeply, snug under a warm duvet, but some automatic awareness that the light was about to change. My bedroom window faced across the channel to the Redentore, 
and I would look out into the darkness waiting for its lines to start forming, as if Palladio himself were sketching them in again, until finally everything had definition. Then I would put on my heavy wool army coat and leave the house without making a sound and begin my walk. The walk was always the same, first down along the Zatere, past the lonely Vaporetto stations. Just before the Stazione Maritima, I would turn into the calle leading to San Sebastiano, Veronese's church, and the bar for Stazione workers that was always open by the time I got there, the windows already moist with steam hissing from the coffee machines. The other customers, in blue workers' coveralls bulked with sweaters underneath, would nod from their spots at the bar, taking in the army coat, then ignore me, turning back to their coffee and cigarettes. Voices kept low. Even at that hour, a few were tossing back brandies. The coffee had been cut with something, chicory, acorns, but was still strong enough to jolt me awake, and standing there with a the first cigarette, it seemed to me that I'd never been asleep at all. Outside, there were a few more people, a boy in a waiter's uniform heading toward one of the hotels, an old woman in a fur coat coaxing a dog to pee, a priest with his hands in his sleeves staying warm. All the insomniacs and early risers I'd never seen before I became one of them. From San Sebastiano it was a straight path, only slightly angled by bridges, to Campo San Barnaba. No produce market yet, just a man hurrying toward the Traghetto station. Then right toward the Academia, looping finally around the museum. Then back through the back alleys toward Salute, past the great swirling church, and out along the Fundamenta to the tip. Here... Huddled in my coat with my back against the old customs house, I sat for hours looking across the water to the postcard everyone knew, Ruskin's waves of marble, the gilt of San Marco catching the first morning sun, the columned landing stage filling with boat traffic, all the beautiful buildings rising out of the water. I thought at first that my mother would tire of it, the way she tired of everything except the past, but Dr. Malione was an unexpected wrinkle. After my father died, there had been a period of melodramatic grief, followed, I assumed, by a series of friendships. Then she had come back to Europe, not really looking for anyone, and suddenly there he was. Not slick or too young or in any way unpleasant, not unlike my father, in fact, gray hair thinning at the temples, quiet, almost reticent, and yet amused by her the way my father had been. He was here, making her look brighter, in love with Venice, not even aware the rooms were cold. So I put off going back to New York, unsettled, not sure where any of us was heading. He's not a fortune hunter, you know, Bertie said. Besides, if you're after money, why not young money? Much nicer. And you know I adore Grace, but she can be a handful. Anyway, he had doges in his family, and he's a doctor my doctor, in fact. So you introduced them. No, no. They've known each other for years, since the old days, when we were all, well, younger than we are now. The parties, my God. I suppose that's part of it. It reminds them. Anyway, you ought to be grateful. You don't want her sitting home alone, do you? Imagine what that would be like. The point is, Grace needed a friend, and now she has one. She's happy, and she's out of your hair. You've got your life to get on with, not worry about her. I want to make sure she's all right, doges or no. Adam, they have dinner, a drink, chat. Nobody's posted the bans. 
You know what I think? You've got a little too much time on your hands. You're making trouble where there's no trouble to be made. My advice is be happy for your mother and mind your own business. Of course, maybe that's it. What's it? Not enough business of your own. I glanced at his thin, almost elfin face, eyes bright and interested behind the half-moon glasses. I don't want to be introduced to anybody. Fix up someone else. I don't fix people up. What's that, army slang? Yes, you do. I mean it, Bertie. I can make my own friends. People never do, though, you know? Have you noticed? You seem to, all right. He lit the cigarette, looking over the flame with an arched eyebrow. Well, I hire them. Oh, don't be vulgar. I don't mean like that. But I grinned anyway, thinking of the long line of research assistants. Young men known to be in the house, but rarely seen, like upstairs maids. One would think you were still twelve years old. Ten. Almost, I said, still grinning. Anyway, too young for your black book. Oh, there's bound to be someone. People have sisters, don't they? And cousins, as it happened. Or rather, the cousin's friend, a connection so tenuous that by the time it had been explained we were already introduced. He always does that, I said as Bertie walked away to join another group. He says it gives people something to talk about. It's Claudia, yes? She nodded, watching Bertie. It was one of his afternoon drinks parties, too late for tea, but early enough to catch the sunset on the Grand Canal outside. Bertie's palazzo was near the Mochenigo on the Sant'Angelo side, and in winter the late afternoon light on the water was muted, almost a pale pink. The crowd was Bertie's usual mix, pale-faced curators from the academia, where he was...